G'day and welcome to the Car Expert Podcast. Today we've got a very interesting show for you. We're going to be talking about some interesting governmental developments that have occurred in the EV space and also the fuel space. Uh, we're going to be talking about the Ranger Raptor. Uh, it's the rapture of the Ranger Raptor, maybe, oh. with the engines potentially needing to be replaced. So we're going to cover that off. And we're going to talk about BMW's $300,000 SUV that you too can own if you have $300,000 to spare. But to help me get through all of that, we've got joining me on the couch to my left, Jay Credentino. How you doing, Jade? Good, how are you? I'm very well, A bit croaky today, yeah, so if you can hear it. <laughs> it's, it's, yeah. She's wearing a jumper. We're keeping her as far away from us <laughs> yes. as possible just to be safe. Uh, and uh, closer to me, because he's not as diseased, Scott Colley. How are you, mate? I feel so much better now. We've kissed hello. <laughs> it's so nice to be close. Disease-free, as yeah, always. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, well, we'll jump right in. Um, a bit of a win for uh, EV enthusiasts this week in Victoria. The High Court ruled that the road user tax that was imposed by the Victorian government is unconstitutional because they declared it an excise, which can only be done at a federal level. So we're going to open it straight up to the floor. Who wants to take away with this one? Let me give you some background on this because there's a little bit to it. But at the moment, if you own a petrol car, along with the registration you pay to the state you live in and your compulsory third party and that sort of thing, you contribute to funding the roads and their repair by paying the fuel excise. So every time you fill your car up with petrol, 48.8 cents per litre of that petrol price at the moment goes to the federal government in Australia. And that money although it can be used for anything, every year in the budget they publish how much of it goes back into road infrastructure. If you own an electric car at the moment, you don't contribute to that because you pay your state registration, but you're not filling it with petrol, which means you're not paying the fuel excise. So what Victoria did was kind of get in early and look at the fuel excise and say, well, we don't get to control that money. It goes to the federal government, but maybe with electric cars, if we get in early and we tax Victorian EV owners, we can control a revenue stream that's only going to grow going forward. And they implemented this uh, road user charge for electric vehicles, which is Jade 2.8 cents yeah, per kilometre. Yeah, for um, electric vehicles and then 2.3 cents for plug-in hybrids. And what electric car owners need to do is every year they need to send a photo of their odometer to the Victorian government and they then pay the charge based on how far they've travelled. Whether or not that was actually in Victoria is besides the point. But the, uh, the, the argument that has been made by... Chris Vanderstock, who was one of the people who took this case to the High Court, is that essentially this is an excise in the same way the fuel excise is an excise. I'm going to say excise some more today. Um, and therefore, Victoria can't actually do it. It had to be the federal government. And they won their case, which means that, as for now, the Victorian EV tax is unconstitutional. What that actually means, though, we don't know going forward. Yeah, so we'll have to see whether it's rolled back, how it's rolled back. Um, I think the idea of having uh, an excise for electric vehicles is really is important. On average, they weigh more than a regular internal combustion car, and they're using the roads the same amount. So I understand where this is, this is an issue for, on a state level, but the federal government probably should be implementing something like this. But as usual, they're very behind the eight ball with <laughs> anything that comes to technology. and, well, and that I, sort of I think the argument that was also made in Victoria, and this without wanting to go too far into my year 12 legal studies, if you want to take a case to the High Court, it has to be a constitutional matter and you have to be actually given standing to do it. So part of the reason that these EV owners challenged it was not just because it was unconstitutional, but because it's a really bad policy if you are trying to encourage people to buy an electric car. You're, you're taxing them on top of your registration and that sort of thing. Um, what I think we need to move towards, and I'm really curious for your thoughts on this, Jade, as someone who owns a car, obviously, 
is the same road funding for everything, no matter how you, you know, how you drive your car or what you own. So I think that this lays the foundation now for, rather than the states doing their own thing, for the federal government to look at overall reforming how Australians actually pay for using the roads. And maybe that is a per kilometre charge, but it's the same for every single car. Mm -hmm. Maybe registration centralised, because it's done in some parts of the world. It opens the door for all sorts of things. But I suppose I'm curious to know if you would be actually willing to or happy to change from paying 700 bucks a year for rego plus fuel excise to just paying as you go per kilometre. Yeah, look, I think it'll help with the cost of living. I know that petrol prices right now are ridiculously expensive and at an all-time high. So obviously being able to lower that every day, that kind of obviously helps. And then you kind of, I know I pay my registration once a year, so it's like a once a year hit and then I don't have to think about it again. I think that it needs to, I, I do agree with Sean in the part that like eventually it will need to be a federal matter and actually be implemented if they want to encourage a lot more EVs on the roads than where's that funding going to come from to repair the roads? I think they're stuck between a rock and a hard place because you obviously want to encourage EVs in space and especially we're getting more and more manufacturers finally bringing their models here. But if then people turn around and say, well, I don't want to buy it because now I'm going to have to pay an even like higher tax or I'm going to have to pay something in addition to what I'm already paying, it kind of doesn't even itself out. And I think that's why we're in the situation in the first place and I don't know if it's because he was like, uh, like the what was his name the one that filed the the lawsuit Chris Vanderstock. yes I do understand that obviously Victoria is the only state so it's a bit like a oh it's unfair but I think eventually it will have to be a federal thing but it's hard to say hey we're going to tax everyone who has an EV but we also want you to go and get an EV I think it, this is purely based on our back of the envelope maths that we did yeah. before the podcast <laughs> today um an average person who does, like an average Australian does like around 10,000 Ks a year. And so we worked out that the even with this current EV charge, the, an EV owner was only paying about a third of the amount of excise as what uh, internal combustion drive yeah, was. So, so 10,000 Ks at 2.8 cents a kilometre is 280 bucks. Exactly. So it's, it's a, a lot less than what you're paying if you're driving a petrol or diesel vehicle. So, I mean, I don't see the, the issue with the uptake being there. I think the problem, uh, as Scott alluded to, the problem came from the fact that the Victorian government was doing the dodgy a little oh, yeah. bit. Yeah. So I think it's a, like it's really important. It doesn't necessarily have to be the same amount mm. um, because obviously part of the petrol one is an emissions thing. But I mean, not having it seems worse than having it, to be honest. Mm. Look, I think I think it needs to be the same across the board. Maybe it's weight-based, which is something that's coming in in France. Well, the that's more always the cut. case with uh, registration. Is it is weight classes yeah. that, that that like I pay a lot more than what Jade would pay for her rego per year. Well, right, Ford XR8, Hyundai yeah. i30. Yeah, um, but I think it needs to be consistent, regardless of what's powering your car. We need to just say that this is what it's going to cost you to travel on our roads, based on how much your car weighs, or what size it is, or whatever classification they use. Because ultimately, at the moment, electric cars are still a new technology, but they're growing so quickly. At some point, it's just going to be a car. Yeah. And it's going to be more complicated to try to distinguish between them with different taxes than mm. just to treat them the same way as cars and motorists. Mm. Well, to, to stick to the same, sort of, same area as we've been discussing, um, the AAA uh, will undertake a government-funded quest to test 200 brand new vehicles to see what their real-world fuel economy is. Pop quiz for both of you. What does AAA stand for, Sean? Oh, I have it oh, written down, so I cheat, so you can go. go. On, no. So it's the 
Australian Automobile Association. Yeah, basically yeah. the governing body behind the NRMA, the RACV, RACQ. Yeah, they're, they're, they're the, the motoring the clubs. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. So they're going to run a test uh, to the tune of about 14 million government funded dollars, I think. <laughs> yeah, something like that. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, out the back of Geelong on 200 brand new vehicles to see whether the fuel claims that you get on your little sticker stacks up to real world figures. Now, before we start this, I'm going to preface this by saying we know in this office and for you at home so you know, those figures are tested in a laboratory uh, setting. All the parameters are idyllic for the car to be able to get optimum fuel economy. So the idea of those is not that that's what you're going to achieve, but it's to compare a apples high, with apples. Yes, a Tucson yeah. does this, a RAV4 does this. Yeah. You can have an idea of how much more fuel it's going to use. Yeah. But anyway, I digress. So. I think the interesting thing about this is, although we know that because we work in the industry and we spend a lot of time driving cars and looking at the figure going, that's not what the manufacturer said. Yeah. I don't think general punters out there do. I mean, we get a lot of messages from people who have bought a car and it doesn't match the fuel claims. There's even been court cases recently in Australia where someone has sued was Mitsubishi Australia for their Triton having significantly worse fuel economy in the real world than on the official combined test. So, this is an issue that people really care about, and it's an issue that was really thrown into the spotlight even more with Dieselgate, with Volkswagen uh, back in the day. I loved that documentary. It was really good, wasn't it? Highly recommend it. Uh, I think it's on Netflix. Yeah. Unless um, you work for Volkswagen, don't watch it. <laughs> yes. Might be a bit traumatic. But uh, yeah, it was actually really interesting, and it will give a lot of context to obviously what the AAA are doing now. Yeah. But the, the reason that these lab tests are not necessarily accurate to the real world is, like Sean said, conditions are ideal, but also car makers know what they are. And I'm not saying the car makers are cheating on them because it's not cheating if you're given the parameters and you study to solve that test. But ultimately, software in gearboxes is designed to shift up at the right point so the car is efficient on that test. And emissions control systems work their best on that test. And it's all an that open sort of book thing. exam, pretty much. Exactly. Yeah. And that's what it needs to be because car makers need to know what they're working towards. Otherwise, they invest billions of dollars in engine development and then have to go back to the drawing board. Yeah. But putting things in the real world does bring in some new variables that is going to give data that's more relevant to Australian buyers. And I think that can only be a good thing. I think one thing that um, I'm going to find really interesting, So, and correct me if I'm wrong, Scott, but most of this testing is done, say, for instance, in Europe or in America where these car manufacturers are actually based, but Australian road conditions are very, very different. Mm. And what an Australian would travel, like what their daily travelling looks like, I presume would be very different to a European or even an American. So I'd be very interested to see the final results. Um, I did a little bit of research into it and it looks like a very interesting topic and I'm really keen to see, I think they're releasing something in November. Um, so I'm really keen to see what it comes out with, but I think it'd be interesting if I was a manufacturer, I would kind of be a little bit hesitant. I mean, I don't know, it's already happened with Mitsubishi once. Um, I don't know what's going to happen once these results actually get finalised. I have a bit of a problem with the whole thing. Ooh, oh, okay. Gonna, I'm going to get into All it right. quickly. Um, these real world conditions are great if yep. you live in Geelong. But if you live in Bundaberg or if you live in Broome, <laughs> it's not going to relate to you so well. And hear me out on this one. So I've, the other I've got problem some is, thoughts. What, but what, so they test them all in a lab, so it's all the same. But yep. what happens when they go out to test car X? Yep. It's a nice, warm, sunny day. They go out to test car Y. It's cold and raining. They go out to test car Z, and it's windy but 38 degrees. Like the the real world conditions are great. It's a great theory but you're suddenly not comparing apples to apples anymore with this. The results are not gonna be 
as consistent as they maybe need to be for something like this to have so any effect. I think what I would say to that is first up that yes, I understand if you don't live in the area, they're testing the numbers won't perfectly match you. But ultimately a drive cycle kind of makes sense across different parts of the country if you are on the road. So I still think it is gonna be more useful information than a lab test, despite the fact that the highway they're testing on might not be the same as the one that you drive on. As for the, uh, the data that comes out of it, I actually don't know how they're gonna handle that. Um, but I do know that you know, it's very easy to build in a range, for example. If you look at WLTP numbers from Europe, they'll give you the best possible range, which is a car with no options on small wheels. They'll give you the worst possible range, which is a fully optioned car, big wheels, sunroof, heavy, etc. I don't think it's beyond the realm of possibility these figures will just give you a range calculated based off the testing and the conditions which again is not perfect, but ultimately it's an imperfect science and this figure is still gonna be more useful than the lab figure if you live in the real world. So Jade, quick question to you. Uh, I was gonna say something, but oh, hit no, me on. with your question. Okay, very quickly. Would you, as a consumer, feel more comfortable taking those results on from the AAA in the theory that they've tested in the real world or you're not gonna care, you're just gonna continue. Sean, did you read my mind? Because that was exactly <laughs> what I was gonna say. I think being a consumer and going out and being able to have the knowledge that although this isn't exactly my conditions of how I'm gonna drive this car, I'm not relying on a manufacturer's marketing campaign or a manufacturer's based off claim that has nothing got to do with Australia as a whole. I think if I'm comparing you know, a RAV4 hybrid with a Tucson, I probably won't be comparing it like this has 5.2 litres versus this has, you know, 5.4 litres, I'd be saying which one is closer to that claim and then probably going with that option because that's probably where realistically the vehicle is going to sit with everything else that I'm looking for and that's going to be more relevant and data-driven type thing. Whereas if I look at a claim and, for example, Toyota says their RAV4 is, you know, 5.2 litres per 100 kilometres but then they do this test and it's actually 9 litres, I'm going to drop a little sort bit. Of distrusting, aren't you? Yeah, yeah, you know yeah. what I mean? And that's, I think, it's not necessarily there to create lawsuits and stuff like that, but it's there to empower people who are buying a car that are just going off these claims. And if you do a really nice marketing campaign, people aren't even going to look at these numbers. But if you bring awareness to the fact that, hey, actually, just because it has the word hybrid in it or it has a battery in there, it doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be as fuel efficient as what you would expect. I think the, the last part of this that's relevant is ultimately, although this data might be more useful to the average consumer, the best possible thing you can do is take a car for a long test drive. So if you've got a RAV4 hybrid and you can have it for 24 hours, I know that they're in short supply at the moment, but you are able to drive it to school or to work or to whatever it is and actually see what it uses on that cycle. And I think of examples where I've driven some European cars with start-stop systems that save heaps of fuel, but on a hot summer's day on my commute, the start-stop doesn't work because the engine's working so hard to keep the AC going. And all of a sudden the figure blows out. So I think out of all of this, the other thing is if you can get your hands on the car before you buy it and spend some time behind the wheel, that is the best possible way to understand how it actually performs in your conditions. And maybe you can do your own data compared to the AAA and to the official claim. Also, we do have owner's reviews on our website. So you yeah. can check those out as well. If you're looking to buy a car, there's obviously long-term owner's reviews that people have. So carexpert.com.au. Well, speaking of carexpert.com.au, uh, here, here we go. Last week, Jade, you hosted your uh, CarExpert Open Day. Um, so 
Tell us a little bit about how Everyone it went. Everyone keeps referring it to mine. It was car expert. It was I just happened to be organizing it. <laughs> um, it was really good. I um, stuck around the BYD Dolphin, which we had, and it was really cool to have that there. So big thank you to BYD for organizing that. You but need better security next time, though. Someone spray graffiti all down the side of that. Yeah. Dolphin. I know. I mean, it looks it's good. I mean, I mean, <laughs> yeah, weird look. that they put the name of the car in there, yeah. the graffiti up, but, you know. Just to be clear, we'll put a photo up, but BYD had sticked it up with all sorts of graffiti yes. down the side. Yeah. It was a, it was uh, a real Banksy. It was a real Banksy, yeah. <laughs> uh, but yeah, we had a whole list of cars. He had the Ioniq 6, the MG4, the Renault Megane E-Tech, which I know that you quite enjoyed. Yeah, I did enjoy driving um, that. We had the Chevy Silverado BMW, made it in the end. Yes, yep. the iX1, the Porsche Cayenne Turbo. D yeah, For GT. the full list, there's check out the website. Of, yeah, there's, there's a story anyway, here. There's, there's a whole lot of complicated names and things. Um, there were a lot of standouts. The big standout, I think, was the Cayenne and the Patrol Warrior. Um, which was really cool for a lot of people to see that in the flesh. People love um, V8s too. The common theme for both of them is V8s. And like people were just like <laughs> adrenaline, oh my God. Um, yeah, so we had, a, we exceeded our expectations on how many people were going to um, get tickets for the event. Um, so massive thank you to everybody who did. And the podcast actually, uh, listeners, there were so many of you there. So I did want to say a personal shout out to you guys for listening to the podcast and also coming and introducing yourself. Stay tuned. There might be some more news about something in the future. And Scott and I will try and be there this time. Ah, yeah, I was yes, on a those. beach in Queensland while this was going on. Yeah. I was at a rally stage in South Australia. So, you know, same, same, but slightly you more dusty. I also saw dolphins, though. Did you? Yeah. Oh, there you go. Not the BYD dolphin. Not the BYD dolphin. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, it was a great day. Oh, good. Well, I'm glad to hear it. Uh, th a massive thank you to everyone that came along and a massive thank you to Jade for putting it together. So well done, Jade. That was really, I think she could be a little clap. What are you oh, no. Yeah, a little clap, a little clap. A little golf clap. Yeah, there you go. A fair clap. All right, so if you're a Ranger Raptor owner, you may have heard about some of the issues that are uh, popping up around the place. Do we know any Ranger Raptor owners? I feel like we do. And I, I don't oh, know. Anyway. maybe we work with, anyway. Yeah, the anyway. So um, there's been a few issues come up uh, people have reported drivetrain shutters, they've reported uh, wobbly engines, they've reported squeaky diffs. Yes. But now Ford uh, are, are leaked, allegedly leaked. Um, dealer bulletin. Dealer bulletin yes. has popped up saying that there could be a potential for an engine replacement in a Ranger Raptor if the valve springs are shot. Who wants to take this one? Yes, yeah, so look, at the moment, it's understood to be a small group of cars that may be affected by this problem. And it's not yet clear if those cars will actually need the engines replaced, but the process that Ford has laid out sort of goes through troubleshooting. I know you've written it all down here, but essentially step-by-step step, trying to fix the problem. And the final step in the process is if all else fails, give them a new engine, basically. Yeah, so it's inspect spark plugs, uh, check for cylinder leakage, check compression, uh, check the valve springs and if they're broken, yeah, new engine. And don't forget to replace the turbochargers, it says at the end. Very important, that one. Look, I think this is obviously, if it does come to the point of people getting their engines replaced, I think it's actually, it's both a bad story for Ford because obviously you don't want engines blowing up on you. But the fact that there is a process in place for people who are suffering this issue that may be a warranty engine replacement and they're being very upfront about it, it's probably not a bad thing. I think the other thing that's quite interesting is there's a lot of performance car engines that suffer problems similar to this. Uh, I've written down a couple here, but Ferrari 458 Italia, Porsche 911 GT3, the first of the 991s, were both prone to flambéing themselves on the track. They'd just catch fire. Uh, Subaru BRZ Toyota 86, the current model, is going through an issue with the oil supply on tracks at the moment. 
you spend a lot of time on track and you go around a corner for a long time, it may end up starving the engine of oil and blowing up your engine. And then Ford's also suffered problems with the 2.3 litre EcoBoost engine that's used in the Focus RS, the Mustang, with white smoke and cylinder heads. That's in the, the new Amarok now as well, isn't it? It is, but it's a different version of is the it? engine. Okay, so, so it was no a more highly stressed one in the RS. Okay. So uh, it's obviously bad news if you own a Ranger Raptor and you've been suffering problems with it. And the fact that the problems are there is, is disappointing because we, we know obviously that if you spent 90 grand on a ute, it's reasonable to expect that you're not going to need a new engine within the first 12 months of owning it. But I do think that we, we should remember that Ford is not the only company to have these problems. And the fact that they're hopefully doing something about it is a positive thing. Yeah, I'm a little curious because there seems to be um, a, quite a number of cars these days that do seem to be having these odd issues. So with the Raptor, for instance, Ford, uh, not new to building performance suits. They've been doing it for a long time. Um, obviously, Falcons, uh, uh, the F-150 Raptors. Yeah, the, the Lightning. They, like, they know what they're doing. And I'm curious, like, why do you think this is suddenly happening? Is it just rush production, tie production, poor form? Like, uh, I think the first time, and I know that you say they've been doing performance utes for a long time, but this is the first time a Ranger has had a properly powerful petrol engine in it. Uh, there's a lot of off-road hardware going on interacting with that engine. I know the platform is designed to do it. The Bronco in the US has a different version of the same setup. But I do think the first time you produce and develop anything, there are always going to be issues. And uh, obviously, this is a very significant issue. It's not something that can be fixed with a software update or something like that. But I don't think it comes down to rush production or development or anything like that. I think it's just there's a lot of moving parts involved in making this happen. And unfortunately for Ford, they haven't got it perfect first time around. Well, uh, I guess if you do own a Ranger Raptor, um, bugger. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's Toyota, sorry. <laughs> Uh, anyway, we'll, we'll, keep, we'll keep the podcast moving along. Um, if you're looking to buy a new car, well, we have the website to help you out. It's called Help Me Car Expert. It's very, very simple to use. You head to Google, you type in Help Me Car Expert, and it takes you to a page where we can help you find a new car, connect with a dealer, and get you a great deal on it, and get you in it sooner. So if you've been speaking to a dealer that says, oh, it's a four-year wait on this car, well, maybe check out Help Me Car Expert. We'll hopefully be able to help you get into a new car much quicker. If you do use the service, leave a comment, let us know how was it, because we'd love to know what your experience was like. All right, guys, we'll move on to uh, the review of this week. Uh, it's a big one. Uh, literally. Literally yes. big in every way, and most of them the wrong way. <laughs> uh, but it is the BMW XM, and it is a $300,000 super SUV from, oh, actually, it's a, a proper, like, proper ground-up M car, which has only ever been a very, very small number of those. I'm going to stop you on that one. It's sort of a proper ground-up well, M they're car. they're claiming it's a ground-up M car. It's a dedicated car. There's no BMW version of it, but if you were to strip away all the M bits, it's kind of an X5 with the 4.4-litre V8 from the M5 and the plug-in hybrid bits from other cars. We should mention it is a hybrid. Yes, it is a <laughs> yes, hybrid. It is a plug-in hybrid. Forget all of that. How do you think it looks, Jade? Oh God! Yeah, I don't. Yeah. <laughs> Look, we uh, we had the car last week or the week before. Um, didn't get to drive it, nor did I really have an urging need to. Um, we went inside the car, and I think it was myself, Jack, and Will, and we all opened up do in different doors, and we all just looked at each other and we were like, "What is this?" <laughs> and not <laughs> in a good way. No. I see. That's the thing I like yeah, about it. Yeah, I'm the same. I really like no, the way no, it's finished. See, and I'm looking at your notes here, and it says 
Um, where is it? Lovely interior, less lovely exterior. My opinion is lovely exterior, less lovely really? interior. You look the way it looks on the oh. outside. I think it looks like a beast. Like oh, there's a wow. few people around the office that drive them, not us. Um, <laughs> and it just looks like it owns the road. Like you just, you want to get out of the way. Are you confusing it for the Chevy Silverado we got in the office That the was, Yeah, that was a beast. But. I think it looks cool on the outside. It definitely attracts a lot of attention and you guys will probably say in the wrong way, but I'm with it. I'm an SUV kind of gal. Inside for me, it was just too overdone. Like I cooked, cooked, I burnt banana bread yesterday. It's the same. <laughs> it's like burnt banana bread, like it still tastes good, but like why? Well, see, that's the thing. I, was, I looked at your burnt banana bread and I thought, geez, that looks terrible, yeah. which is the same thought yeah. I had. <laughs> yeah, see? Um, Good analogy. The interior of the XM for me is the strongest part. Yeah, of it. I agree. It's got an incredible stereo. Uh, I, I, I love cranking inappropriate music for the car when the car's got a stereo like that and listening to like Rage Against the Machine. Cotton and that's Joe. I know you listen to that a lot. I'm going to leave that one <laughs> truly alone. Um, heavy sort of you know rock music on that stereo it's like being at a concert it is so crisp and so clear and so loud and i actually think bmw's improving its interior design pretty rapidly but the xm has some really interesting materials you can get that baseball glove leather and each car is unique the roof i have a problem with the roof yeah so instead of a sunroof it's got uh, like a tessellated pattern on the roof that's backlit. I don't love that. I'm with you there. It just looks like a kindergarten's like paper map. <laughs> it's not going to look like, good when your kindergartner gets in the back seat oh of yeah, it though. Oh yeah, with like a crayon. <laughs> oh, no. they're just their fingers and yeah. rubs mackers all over it, yeah. But what I struggle with with this car is, is it's trying to do a lot of things. Mm. So it is a massive car. It's five meters long. It weighs more than two tons. It's a plug-in hybrid V8, so it's meant to be efficient, but also fast. It just feels like it's wearing too many hats. And, and that kind of plays out on the road in normal driving with a ride that's pretty firm. It also means that when you put your foot down, unless you're in exactly the right drive mode, you get electric motor and then engine, and then they both work together and it just takes a second before you go. It just all feels like it's trying to do too much in one go. It felt like it wasn't good at any of it. Like it wasn't great. Like it well, It's not bad at it either. It's just yeah. it doesn't excel in any area. You would think for $300,000, it would be really good at all of those things. But like, you know, it's not really, and we had the M3 Touring a little while ago, and like, I love that you car. know, you can't, it's hard to think that they come from the same workshop, you know? It's yeah. like, but my biggest gripe with it is that it, for two thirds of the price of that, you just buy an X5M, which I, has yeah. very similar power, yep. weighs a hell of a lot less, yep. and is 100 grand cheaper. It's also quicker in a straight line, the X5M. Yeah. I and, actually, and it looks a lot better. <laughs> I, I yeah. agree with that, yeah. I, I had a drive in an X5M on the road, and this was out the back of the hills in Victoria. Um, and I got to the end of this really twisty road in this thing, and I had this splitting headache, and I couldn't work out why. I turned around to go back and I realized it was because the thing corners so aggressively, I was holding my breath to hold my body up in the corners. I hadn't breathed properly for the last half hour. Um, that X5M is a weapon and I, I do think it's a better all-rounder. But I suppose what BMW wants with the X5M is to take on the Bentley Bentayga. It wants to be a Lamborghini Urus rival. And in that context, if you flip it, it's actually pretty good value because they're $450,000 and $500,000 cars. Not that you would get them for that price these days. Be paying You'd be paying a lot more with yeah. your options on there. Yeah. So as much as I, I don't quite understand it, and it's of everything M that I've driven, it's my least favourite, but that's also the M3 Touring I adore. And, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a hard crowd to beat. Um, I do think in the context of what it goes up against, it represents decent value. And I think also, like Jade's saying, if you want to look like you own the road and stand out, you can get some really interesting color combinations. You can get 
green with sort of black highlights or I picked up an XM recently and there was a bold bright blue with gold trim up the side of it. I At least it's got one. some stuff going on. Yeah. So I'm curious uh, your thoughts on this. Um, we've, we've discussed this a bit in the office, I know, but, but for the listeners at home, BMW's design is interesting on, these days. Oh. Like, so, so look at the M3 that currently exists. A few years ago, I remember seeing that and thinking, hmm, that would look much better as an AU yeah. Falcon, but <laughs> uh, it grew on me and I now really, really like the look at the, the front of the M3. But then the M2 came out, I wasn't a fan of that. The X2, the new X2. I actually really that, like, I the like the new X2. I think it looks fantastic. Yeah, yeah, I'm not a fan of it personally. But, but what do you guys think? Do you think that they're, they're pushing in the right direction? They're trying things or someone's just been getting a little high on their own supply? Low. Um, no. I, I quite enjoy it. I think it's especially all their new class 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 anyway the all direction they're, they're going stuff. with those concepts yes. yeah i think it, it's quite revolutionary in what they're trying to do like with japan motor show coming up you're seeing so many concepts but none of them meet that level of design and that level of quality that i think a lot of people are expecting i think when you go into like when i think of futuristic and when i think of like what cars are going to look like in 2050 like BMW, I think, is really nailing it. I think everyone else just is thinking too much outside the box and it's just not realistic. Like that concept form is just never going to make it to production and what's the point? So to answer your question, I think it, it, it they know what they're doing and I think it will work. I think is it maybe too aggressive too soon? Perhaps it's not for everybody like AU Falcon fans. Mate, that was but, out of its time, what can I say? That is but, now a classic. I think the other thing BMW is doing well now is like the worry that we had with the M3 and with the X6 is everything's gonna end up looking like that. Mm. But BMW's actually gone the opposite direction to Mercedes and it's giving each car quite a unique identity. Yes. So the 7 Series, massive grill, aggressive lights. A lot of lights. A lot of lights. <laughs> uh, it, it's just, it is a lot. But ultimately, BMW has decided the people who buy that car want it to be a standout, boxy, bold sort of thing that really shows off, basically. The new 5 Series and i5, I think, look fantastic in the pictures. James has driven them in person, says they look great. They're much more muted because that's what that buyer wants. I think BMW is now in a spot where it is actually kind of tailoring the designs to the right people. And I'm kind of looking forward to seeing the next 3 Series based on that new class concept, the next X3 to see what the sort of toned down, more affordable, more mainstream take on that design language is. Because I think the best looking BMs are the ones that have the least sort of glossy stuff on them. Yeah. They're just sort of to the point like the new 5 Series or the current three. So I guess to BMW's credit, because we've been a little bit harsh to, well, I don't think we've been harsh, but we've been mean to You've them because harsh. of their XM. Don't bring us well, into your bucket, Sean. Um, at least they're doing something because we spent a lot of time and I remember I spent a lot of time throughout the years saying that all the Germans make the same looking cars and I think to their credit they are trying things yeah. whether it works or not remains Look, to be seen. Look I never liked BMWs and really? I never yeah I just I looked Eagles at just them turned off your microphone then, yeah, <laughs> sorry um yeah I never really liked them and I've kind of had a chance to walk through a few of them with the exception of the XM and if I had the money I would kind of consider them and that's kind of what I aspire to be able to purchase like before it used to be you know Lexus and, and the likes where you know it was just very predictable design and very predictable 
comfortability. Whereas I think BMW is going out on their own, they're doing something different and I kind of respect them and am leaning towards them now a little bit more. Okay, well, I'm curious what you guys at, at home are thinking. Do you think BMW are going in the right direction? Do you think they've lost their marbles? Or instead of spending $300,000 on an XM, would you buy three Ranger Raptors so that way when the engines blow up, you have some left to drive? <laughs> Leave a comment and let us know. Uh, we'll, we'll move on to our picks of the week. Uh, Jade, I'll throw it over to you first. I know you've got an absolute cracker this week. Oh, cracker. Yeah, so my pick of the week is um, the race that they did in the Bathurst 6 hours. Well, it's the, the weekend of the Bathurst yes. 6 hour, yeah. yeah. Um, there was a race for Hyundai XLs, now a special spot in my heart. My dad used to drive one a very long time ago. Um, now, this video shows uh, the driver um, overtaking all of his opponents from a wide-angle approach through a bend. Now, it was very impressive. <laughs> just to be clear, so they go full <laughs> wide through the chase at the bottom of Conrad yes, Strait. Yeah, the yeah, fastest yeah. corner Obviously. in Australian motorsport. Yeah, <laughs> but I was, I, I remember watching this video so intently to try because obviously there were manuals. I could never do that. <laughs> I honestly couldn't. There was so much hand-eye coordination happening there. So shout out to Tyler, did a great job. And credit to him as well because the XLs don't spread out like a typical field. They will be bunched together in a group yep. of four wide and five deep, and yep. they will go down Conrod absolutely flat knacker. So yeah, that was it's, it's a really impressive drive. Yeah, 100%, because that is a scary track at 60 k's an hour, let alone flat out. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Scott, what have you got this week? Uh, I've gone slightly faster than a Hyundai XL. Um, Misha Shadruin, I think is how you say his surname. I'm sorry if it's not, but he's essentially the Nürburgring master. He had a company where he would teach people to drive around the Nürburgring, rent them cars, and he's now doing these videos on Instagram and YouTube where I rock up in my car and he'll take me for a lap in my car of the Nürburgring. People rock up in all sorts of crazy stuff, modified cars, race cars, all the way down to really basic stuff. But he posted a video of hopping around in a Model S Plaid with a race seat or a Caro in it, and on one of the straights, he hits 306 kilometers an hour. The way this thing accelerates is unbelievable. The way it stops, less unbelievable. Looks a little bit sketchy <laughs> as he gets on the brakes. Yeah. But just watching it accelerate and watching this driver who is very, very experienced at that track in all sorts of cars, and even the way he reacted to the top speed, I just thought it was incredible. <laughs> he's That's like, yeah, not doing that again. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Once That's was enough. And to his and to Misha's credit, he's a phenomenal driver and he does this on what is like tourist days there. So yeah. there is just punters that have paid their 40 euros or whatever to drive around the track and he's dodging all of them going absolutely flat. He in is someone phenomenal. else's car with the owner yes. in the passenger seat. It's yes. brave. Um, I'm not sure what their insurance premiums are, but I don't want to pay I, it myself. I don't know if they cover the Nürburgring. <laughs> no. Not many do, I think. Yes. Uh, look, I'm going to go faster than both of you combined. <laughs> uh, now, if you are a fan of Formula One, you may fondly remember the RB7. That was the mighty V8-powered Red Bull machine from 2011. It is... A weapon. Oh, oh, chills at the sound of it. Uh, they're racing in, they raced in Texas this morning. If you're watching uh, today when we release the podcast on Monday, but they, they just raced this week in Texas. But to celebrate that, they took Daniel Ricciardo to Nashville to do some donuts in the street. And then they took him into the garage at Third Man Records. Now, Third Man Records is a place owned by Jack White. Of, of the White Stripes. Of the White Stripes. Yeah. Uh, and he has a very famous song called Seven Nation Army, which the Red Bull mechanics then chose to play with the engine of the RB7. Uh, and I'm going to play an audio clip for you now uh, so that those of you at home can hear it. Who 
can we do a separate podcast on the fact that the White Stripes was Jack White and his then wife, but instead of telling them that they were together, they told the world that they were siblings? Yes, it was very strange. Very strange. I mean, they might be siblings. No, they... No, they... (laughs) Another podcast entirely, but Jack White, fascinating dude, and this... Not my favourite rendition of Seven Nation Army, but a pretty cool take pretty on what you can cool. do with an engine. Look, uh, Seven Nation Army at 18,000 RPM is pretty damn cool. So, yes, uh, I think anything with the RB7 is awesome. So I, I love that they, they still get that out and still drive around in it. Uh, guys, that's pretty much it for this week. Uh, any final thoughts before we wrap up? I'm looking forward to seeing Daniel Ricciardo race. I, I know that we're going to have found out how he went by the time this goes live. Yes. Oh, he did a great job, didn't oh, he? Damn, that crash. Not, not again. How disappointing. <laughs> uh, but... F1 has kind of caught the world's attention recently and Danny Rick is one of the characters that people just love. So very much looking forward to seeing him back out there flying the flag for Australia. Yeah, Two Aussies on the track at the same time. How good is that? It's going to be awesome. Piastri will be up the front. Yes. Ricardo maybe not. Yes, but uh, like the, I don't remember. It's been a long time since we saw two Aussies on the track. It would have been time. when Weber and Ricardo were out there at the same time. Yeah, and um, they were a nobody, but now they're both somebodies. They're both absolutely killing it in that world. Absolutely. And it is really awesome to see that. So... Yeah, uh, all right, well, that pretty much wraps us up for the week. Uh, Guys, thanks for coming and sitting down with me, and uh, thank all of you for joining us. We're going to be back next week with another very exciting show, so make sure you subscribe on YouTube or on whatever podcast streaming service you listen to. We'll see you next time.